Art vs. Commerce podcast. Been a few weeks since we've had an episode, been, uh, been a bit busy on projects, but happy to be back again. And this week is with agent and uh, business owner Walter Partos. He owns Partos Company, which represents cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, producers, and editors. And he has a storied career, has been, has been working for a long time in Hollywood. It's really quite amazing. Uh, if, you, if you look back far enough, he was a literary agent at first, and clients include Quentin Tarantino, Mardik Martin, Chris DeVore, and uh, then through that became a visual art, uh, representing visual artists. Um, one of his first was Jordan Cronenweth, and it has now expanded, and he has a large number of cinema, cinematographers on his roster, uh, including previous guest Oren Soffer, who was uh, currently on their roster. And so this episode is a bit different than normal in terms of, um, for a few reasons. One, we didn't really, it's not as the, the standard in terms of going through the chronological retelling of of uh, Walter's career, more so that it, it became kind of like a, uh, really more about learning about the agency world, being an agent, someone who wants to get an agent, what they should be doing, how they should be thinking, what to expect when they get one, how best to maximize it, kind of a, a Q&A advice t- more type of an hour. And also we, um, due to some technical difficulties, we recorded on a few different occasions and this is a, a combination of a few of those different recordings. So if, uh, if it sounds like um, a conversation getting rehashed a little bit, that's the reason why. But all, all told, I think that for, uh, I think a, lar- a large part of the audience of this show is hoping to get an agent and so the nature of it being more about advice and Q&A about that world uh, I think seems to make sense and I would hope um, you all find it um, in, insightful and, and, and useful and it, it's really it's a funny thing because and I brought this up during the during the episode is that you know I feel like there are two predominant uh, feelings about agents. And one is that everybody loves to tell the story of, you know, I, I got an agent and then it wasn't the big moment that I thought it would be, or like my life didn't change, or it wasn't this overnight, I've now made it scenario. And um, that said, and then likewise, it's also said, people are like, but, but, but people still want one anyway. And people still talk about that it's a great thing for them to have. And so that seems a bit contradictory, even though probably in the details, you know, we come to realize that it's not. Um, it's just about how you approach it and what your expectations are and how you best leverage having that asset as a part of your career. And so it, it was just, it's, it's, it was fun to pick his brain and to really try and understand how it, it's this um, nuanced piece of kit, as, as I think Walter kept trying to explain it as, that, you know, your agent is like your gaffer. And, you know, depending on how you speak to your gaffer and depending on if you're hiring the right gaffer for the right job, that makes all the difference. And it, and it really is no different than uh, when it comes to your agent. And so we go deep into that. And so for that reason, it was um, a unique and interesting episode. If you can like and comment on iTunes, that will help spread the uh, conversation and the show further. We're on all social media channels at AVCPod. That's our handle. And for any inquiries, questions, or uh, guest ideas, you can email uh, this show's producer, Courtney Ryan, at Courtney at AVCPod.com. So, this week, Walter Partos. Like, why do I choose to be an agent? Yes. I choose because I like solving problems mm. and I like listening to people and really trying to hear what they're saying and to help them navigate their goals. And But also sometimes to help them define their goals. Yeah. Because people are told, hey, a great cinematographer does a, a diverse range of films. Therefore, if I do a diverse range of films that's a good thing and I don't think so I mean you look at Mark Rothko and his work is very similar but he's a great artist whereas there's other people that you see at the you know farmer's market and they're selling paintings on the side and they have every type of painting you can imagine but none are that good so well, it's yeah not, it's rules not like diverse. that are very specific like they can change depending on the person well I think what happens is external rules are almost universally bullshit. Mm. And when you start to follow universal rules, then you lie to yourself. So it's like we were saying earlier about an agent. Someone says to me, wow, 
you used to represent Quentin Tarantino, or you represented, like, my first DP ever represented was Jordan Cronenworth. Wow, so what did you tell Jordan? I didn't tell him anything. He was an adult. Like, yeah. I tried to listen, <laughs> and I mean, like, what am I going to tell him? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and if, if, like, the people I represent now, I represent some wonderful artist. I don't mention the artist to you because they all have a real fond place for me. And by mentioning one, I must feel like... Yeah, I understand. Um, but so someone says, wow, I really love this one artist you represent. Therefore, I want you to be my agent. And I'll think, no, no, no. I should be your agent because I connect with what your career goal should be and how yeah. you're going to get there. And I have a nice approach to it. That's why I should be your agent. Not because of something I've done for another person. Right. And um, and another thing, too, like my, my favorite relationships with artists are where they disagree and say, well, I disagree. Why are you saying this? Yes. And um, those can be the best collaborations. Yes. Yes. So what we were saying before is there's no secret, because if you think about if my job is to navigate. So if I see my job as helping people navigate, step one is to really define where do you want to be? And that's going to change. But where do you want to be? Not where do you want to be, but like understanding who you are and where do you want to be with your career? Mm. And then saying, how do we get there? And what's the best way to get there? But there's no secret because one person, if it's literally navigating, and I know there's problems with this metaphor, you know, this whatever. But um, one person starts in one location. Another person starts in a different location. One person has their capabilities. You have different capabilities. So trying to apply this other person whose career you love to you will only guarantee that you fail. It's part of the joy 100%. for you. Yeah, it's part of the joy for you in the work figuring out the the unique puzzles of, of every person that you're trying to. Yeah, that's the best for. part. The absolute best part. Yeah, that is the absolute best part. That's why, you know, like so I'm talking to you and it's a pleasure and we were saying this thing about, is there a through line in people's lives? And, and I like that you've been doing this over the last two years, except I utterly disagree that there is no through line. I think you well, kind I of... Well, I wouldn't describe it that way specific, like exactly. How would you describe it? Um, I think in the, in the sense of a mere hour-long conversation, we can only discuss so much uh, with any particular guest. And that there tends to be certain, kind of like what you were saying, to, to, to try and make it a bit more agreeable with you in terms of like, you're figuring out the unique puzzle of, of any given person and what makes sense for them. And I would argue that whatever you conclude about a person and how you're best suited to help them because of X, Y, and Z, that X, Y, and Z has been around in their lives, affecting their lives in certain ways. And obviously as they get older and as they have more experiences and variables that they have no control over of impact them, whatever that X, Y, and Z is, is changing to a degree. But I've found in a lot of my conversations that, you know, part of what they had wanted to do kind of has always been there as an engine. And that if we take away the granular details of any given time in their lives, maybe on, on, on occasion, you know, the, the choices that they're making have been based on the same kind of things throughout their life and they may or may not have realized. All right, how does this sound? Go ahead. I think that people have affinities that they truly love. Mm -hmm. Then they have things that they're told they should love. And it's hard when you ask people literally about what they're doing because they'll universally tell you about the things that they feel they should. Hey, who are the filmmakers you like? I like the Coen brothers and Fellini. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. What cinematographers do you like? Well, you know, Roger Deakins is really good. Wonderful. Perfect. Yeah. But show me Roger Deakins on the second film and point out that you love him. Then I'm going to listen. You know, mm -hmm. point out these people before they've had this wonderful, illustrious career. And then then show me. Because, like, you know, a lot of artists um, do things for really... Um, like you said, unique puzzles. And, and I try to understand not the things they tell me, but to really understanding their underlying motives. Because my job isn't to um, judge people or tell them who they are. My job is to kind of understand them 
And if I do a good job, they'll just have this wonderful career. And there's always ups and downs to everything. Yeah. And that'll be the impact I have. You know, there is this quote, you know, if that if um, God wants to punish you, he gives you exactly what you asked for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think it's the same as an agent. That, that If I do exactly what people tell me to, they will be miserable. So it's your job is figuring out what they really need versus their own understanding of it. Well, it's understanding what they're saying in that one moment. Yeah. And to try to reconcile something to that, because I'm not the people I represent are artists and their art isn't writing. And it's not like, you know, William Styron wrote a book about his depression that was incredible, that it took a great novelist to really understand himself in that way. And cinematographers understand by images and by shooting. And some, you know, know, some are really bright individuals. But my job is almost at first help them to understand themselves in a different way to have help them find focus, to help them remove all of the, you know, the noise and find that. Yeah. So that's it's it's a, a conversation for me. Isn't me telling somebody something, but it's like you and I. We're talking about these things, and hopefully by the end of the conversation, I've given you something to think about, and you've given me something to think about. And then we take that away if I'm your agent in understanding the business, and I try to realize those things. But I try, whenever I talk to the people I'm fortunate enough to represent, to give them something to think about. It, It might be small, but always leave them with something so they think, okay, whenever I talk to this guy, I always get something out of it. Yeah. And maybe it's not what I thought it would be. And, and it's not just with artists. I really try to do this universally. And a lot of times, you know, calls are so short and things are really more, you know, transactional, mm-hmm. which is great, which is why I love text messaging. So if I'm going to have a purely, you know, binary conversation with somebody, I try to just text them. Yeah. And I try to reserve phone conversations for something where a phone conversation will add to it. Yeah. To, to go into the through line type conversa- uh, discussion we were having. So uh, all of these things about what you like to do, um, I think that they existed at the time when you had mentioned earlier that you pursued acting and that you came to New York and that you were studying under Stella Adler and that you, but I think that these certain aspects about what you liked about life and what gave you joy were still existing at what point was there this change from pursuing acting or writing to then being an agent for other artists like I'm very curious about what that pivot looked like and how you made that that decision well I got a job at a large agency and I don't even remember how and um, was it simply just to get a job because like acting wasn't like you were trying to ride that out but uh, you needed needed a job in the meantime yeah I just moved to Los Angeles and I got a job and um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Did I want to write? Did I want to direct? Did I want to act? And um, and I got a job there, and I thought, this is incredible. I represent people, and uh, I can make a difference. I can have conversations with people who I really respect, mm. um, and I can make an impact, and I really liked that a lot. There and, wasn't uh, there wasn't a... Because um, I know how much storytelling matters to you through the conversation we've had. Um, there wasn't a side that felt like you were moving further away from the actual act of being the storyteller? Or do you not view it that way? Uh, so we spoke about storytelling and we were saying how um, I'm curious about people and, and who they're about and you know what's their story and what's their background. And I have a great curiosity and there's something I, I think about people that's incredibly interesting and it led to doing this and there's things stories you want to tell so either you're helping someone else tell a story or you're telling a story and I feel like the way that people understand themselves is through story mm-hmm. that's why you know you go back to Homer and people told stories but the contradictory thing is you know if I just woke up tomorrow morning and I was um, doing research into you know if I had a scientific job I'd be equally happy I mean I would love that just as much or if I woke up tomorrow and I was I don't know if I was in government I would love that just as much so I did this and I utterly feel so appreciative that I get to interact with people who mean a lot to me and try to make a difference in their lives 
Yeah. But if I had an utterly different career, I could show you through line to that too. Like here, like let's say I woke up tomorrow and I was a scientist. You can choose whatever science because it doesn't matter. Right, right, right. I could show, well, like when I was a kid, I corresponded with scientists. I was always good at solving certain kinds of problems in the way that um, there's a really great scientist and um, he was good at math, but he was, he much more enjoyed teaching and hanging out and sharing ideas and challenging people. And um, his biggest joy was kind of visualizing problems in a way that other people couldn't. Yeah. And he had a wonderful life and, you know, and, and like in no way do I say I'm like Einstein because I'm not because he was Einstein yeah but 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 what I meant is that if I was a you know whatever maybe mediocre scientist or who knows how I'd be I would have led that through a line too so yeah no I and I I get that that it's also you're in the environment in which you like to have your headspace and if you're finding meaning in your everyday interactions and that you feel that you are you know partaking in in the bigger things that give you joy in the medium that that you want to be in then it kind of ends up being that's the way that's the way then I don't know I think it's a little different I think what happens is, you know, we're in the world and we go down a path and we just keep going further and we find things that we enjoy. And there's some of us who say they can't imagine doing anything else. But truly, you know, occupations, whether it's cinematography or scientists, are very small. And as people, we're a lot more um, interesting and vast than we give ourselves credit for. And I think that we could do a myriad of things. The problem is, if you want to say, like, what do I think the biggest problem in society right now is, or that's always existed, is that the things we aspire to are only valuable when there's a parallel in what exists in the marketplace. Mm. So, you know, folks now work so hard to make a living, you know, it's a global marketplace. You compete with people all over the world. It doesn't matter what you do. So you devote a lot more time, you know, to that. And, you know, people commute to and from where they go. And a lot of your life is spent either with commerce or with going back and forth from the commerce. And the sad part is, is that there are occupations which have incredible value, which would mean a lot to people. But because of the way things are, they're not considered occupations. So we find an occupation that aligns with what we want to do. But, you know, we leave school and we stop studying. And we leave school and we stop being inspired. And we we leave school and we stop that kind of restlessness because we have a job. And whatever our job is, we become successful. And we start to define ourselves by that occupation. And that's wonderful. But the problem is, no matter what your occupation is, whether it's the president of the United States or you're Emmanuel Lebesky or you're whatever, that's very confining. And you look at like Chivo, who's just incredible. He loves Instagram. Well, Instagram's different than cinematography. But... Here's a creative soul who's always yearning to express himself and finds that as much as he loves something, there's so much more in it than would seem apparent. So, like, what's a good life? A good life is if you're a cinematographer and you wake up one day and you think, you know what? I love just the idea that I can set up lights and create something that only exists in my imagination. Another person says, like, I love to find how the sun and its interplay and reflecting and doing this and that. And I love stories that take place in the world where there's not a lot of equipment where I capture what exists in the world. So you have one person who says, I love a world that I've created. One who says, I love a world that exists, but it's going further and further. As an agent, the part that you try to do is to say, well, my goal is I want to win an Oscar. Awesome. But it's not winning the Oscar. It's finding that thing in your art that you really connect with. Yeah. So you talk to an artist about films they've liked and they say a film and, they, and you go, well, what was the scene? And you kind of understand and you try to bring that to them. So this is a long roundabout way of saying, I apologize for it being so verbose, but I think when we define the things we do, even to ourselves and mm. say, this is the thing, we almost automatically take a bit of the life out of it and kill it. So I think What's the thing the we are, it's, it's this thing we do, it's the actions we take, Not it's not static. It's like when we say, I'm a good person. No, every day I strive to be a good person. I'm this thing and I define what I am. You almost kill it. It's every day saying, here's things that I love and I'm striving for, it's action, it's being active. What so, do you see? What do you see in cinematographers or the people 
that you're an agent for, what maybe mistakes are people making in terms of boxing themselves into a definition? I think that things like Instagram are incredibly dangerous. I think they're incredibly dangerous, and I only just realized it now. Because what happens with Instagram, it's wonderful to share images, but then people like the images. And you're like, wow. And then you like other people's images, and and they appreciate it. But what happens is you get this automatic feedback loop of doing things that other people appreciate, as opposed to having more of a private journey where you make photos and you don't show them the people and you kind of go through it and you get to a point where now you share it right now there's it's this really small feedback loop of i post a photo and people like it and that's wonderful and 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 i'm not saying that's a bad thing but what i'm saying is it gets away from that journey where you make a bunch of mistakes and from that mistakes you do something wonderful instagram almost encourages nice stuff but not great stuff because great stuff comes from mistakes and errors and problems and going, that's really bad. Shit, I can't believe I did something that awful. Then you wake up and you're like, no, this is what I want to do. But with Instagram, the danger, I'm not saying it's bad, is that you're always getting people liking it. Wow, I had 500 likes and I had 6,000 likes or whatever you have. And you don't take that journey that's artists don't have that single solitary journey that they take on their own at times, mm. you know? So like one of the bigger pitfalls of right now is, is instant gratification in, in things that, yeah. in, in, in your own artwork that may be mediocre and you're not even able to see its mediocrity because of the uh, gratification you're getting from other people? All right, what if we replace mediocrity with mm-hmm. just, it's good. You have yeah. good stuff, or maybe it's very good, Yeah. but it's kind of expected. Maybe Instagram is a That's little more That's the best expected. word, expected, isn't it? Expected, yeah. It's I, think, I think one of the worst things to... I was having a conversation with a director that I've collaborated with, and we were talking about work and sci-fi that we didn't like and talking about trying to figure out why. And he was like, you know, it was because it was obvious. And it's interesting to me that obvious... You know, that's probably the that's the worst thing an artist can hear, that your work was obvious. I, that's probably the antithesis of good art. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's obvious. Well, let me ask you this question, because I do realize, you know, we're, we're, you're saying that part of the issue is that you can kind of get caged into just only putting out things that people like, and then it kind of stunts experimentation, which can lead to the next thing that you really want to be doing. But on the business side and looking at it as an agent, you know, you obviously, I would, I mean, I'm not obviously, but I would imagine that knowing that a potential person you were repping has a large following, that that is a sellable aspect of them to potential productions and it's going to help them in a bid. How do you balance, you know, something that can be, because I find this, I find this a lot and I've actually noticed this conversation happening a ton where a lot of freelance creatives are like, social media is driving me insane, but I feel like I need to be doing it because I feel like it's a part of my business. And like, how do you view that? So if I have a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, or I have a thousand, but in that thousand are really interesting directors and interesting cinematographers mm. and people whose work I admire. Or the 100,000 where it's like people who I don't necessarily want to work with or don't want to collaborate with. In business terms, we convince ourselves, like, you know, it's not that there's no such thing as bad publicity, but publicity is an engine or it's a it's motion. You have to ask yourself, where does this motion go to? It would be better to have 100 followers and get people look at your work who you want to be working with and you aspire to or producers or whoever than a big following. So you have to be careful just from a business standpoint to go, are the people who I'm engaging the people who I want to be working with? Because yeah. if they're not, then who cares what you have? It's like People Magazine. You know, yeah. yeah, they have a massive following, but the people you want, you know, like if I'm in politics, I would rather senators or I'd rather the you know, Supreme Court justices read my stuff. I'd rather people who I aspire to, um, you know, mm. interacting with and being mm. part of that conversation, then I want to do that. I'd rather, you know, um, have a periodical where Ruth Bader Ginsburg calls me up and says, hey, I read that article. I really want to meet you. Yeah. As opposed to something where, you know, where just nothing yeah. Where, where well, my article's next to fashion tips. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, it makes total sense. It's a longer term mindset, which is obviously the better one. It's, you know, I guess there is some somewhat of a false narrative in terms of how much 
that stuff comes into play if you're in a, um, I don't know, if you're in like a triple bid and they are, you know, it's something in advertising and they're going to care about um, the social media pull of the people involved in the project. Oh, they won't care. No, that doesn't matter. Because you know what? No, it doesn't matter. They care about the social media pull of the talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But no one watches it like an Arby's commercial and go, wow, look at that director. <laughs> Very <laughs> but, true. You know what I mean? Like Very no one true. really gives a shit. No, it's, it's, the, it's the actors. Come on. Yeah. Yes. Well, I was going to ask this question. I mean, how long have how long has Partos been the company as it currently is? Uh, that's a hard question. It really is. I don't even know how to answer it. And I'll tell you what. This is why. That's I interesting. Your why? Question. Why? Why is that difficult? Because I I look at the people I work with, and um, the things I aspire to are to as a company to make a difference in our clients' careers. And I aspire to having the way, when people ask me to describe myself and the things I I aspire for the company to be, I want the people who we represent to describe us in the same way. So there's an integrity. And I feel like um, every day I go to work and I learn something new and I'm a little bit better at my job. And I learn from my artists and I learn from criticisms and I learn from things I did well and things I did poorly. So every day I go to work and say, okay, how can I do something good? How can I make a difference? How can I help my colleagues to be better at what they do? How can I help my colleagues to you know, be of service to them, to really be their best agent they can be? And, and really, um, so the form it is is changing and um well let me ask a different question how did it when did you open your doors a long time ago a million years <laughs> i don't even know it was so long ago it was like the dark ages well i i get in terms of leading that type of business from from the dark ages to now what do you you know what's oh what's the big change yeah oh there's one huge change and it was the best change ever and then that way it is social media is the best thing that ever happened to our business by far isn't that and funny though like a, yeah, but I'll tell you it, why it's the best thing. Okay, because you know it sounds why? contradictory, even though I know you're not no, trying no, no. to be. It's the best thing that ever happened. Because 10 years ago, directors would go to their producer and say, find me some good DPs, let's say in advertising. Find me some good people, right? Um, I want to talk to the cinematographer. I want to talk to this person. But kind of everyone lived in a little walled-off thing, and they had producers or they had agents and say, hey, agent, who do you think are the best 10 directors? And the agent was like, hey, Here's the best 10 directors. And you had people who curated the world for you and connected people with you and did all of this crap, right? Now, with social media, you can just go online and Vimeo and find directors yourself. You can find cinematographers yourself. You can find people yourself. I wouldn't just say social media. I mean the web. But social media is like an interactive version of the web. Yeah, yeah. So you have a website, and social media is kind of an interactive version of that. So web and social media. So what I mean is that now directors can find people and they don't need to be curated for them all the time. And the artists I'm, I work with can find people they aspire to. When this shift so, was happening, were you, um, was it nerve wracking at first? Like, was it a, a thing to grasp at first? How, how did, how did that? That was awesome. You know, from so, the very beginning? There's, yeah, there's little things I'm proud of and, you know, whatever. But for below the line agents, I think I was literally the first agency to have a website. I think I was the first agent or just about to use DVDs. You know, like, what does that mean? Like, literally, I was one of the first to say, I want to use DVDs because everyone else had to record inch tapes. I was one of the first to do a website because people are like, no one's going to look at stuff on the web. Why would you do that? And it was awesome. It was like a little TV set. <laughs> where the videos would play. So I had like a frame of a TV set and our client's reels being the left and right and you'd hyperclick and the reel would play in the TV set. Yeah. Uh, oh, I love this. No, it's not nerve-wracking because it's like, you know, like you're out there and there's a wind and you just kind of sense where the wind's going and you go with it. Yeah. And you kind of know, I love that change. Were you, um, were you, no, I, was it like a smaller amount of people that you were representing for a while and then, because now it's grown quite considerably what what has been the cause for that for that change on your side? Is it was it a philosophical shift or just um, a desire for growth? I'm curious how you how you came to that um, to um, the current state I think that it what is. Happen is you have people you work with and you meet artists and you really like their stuff and it kind of it just happens. I mean, I'd love to say that there was this one thing where I woke up and I said, 
it just, it kind of just happened. But now, interestingly, I'm kind of going the opposite direction for a while. I'm saying I really don't want us to be really careful at who we sign and really sign very few people. And my whole focus is now, how can I provide better and better service to the people who I represent? So it's... Is that, is that a two-way street in terms of... Yeah, it's if, a two-way street. Because I think... Totally. Like how, yeah. what are the things that, how do you feel like your clients are best maximizing you? And, and the help that you can give them. Oh, oh, the way that artists can best maximize my help is by being um, open to new ideas and being being coachable. When artists are coachable, I can do the best job for them. By coachable, I mean saying, hey, try this and let's do this and really listening. Like I've had artists who I couldn't represent and it was really sad. And recently there's artists who I stopped representing because I would hear from them, you know, I'm a good person and I don't get rehired because those people don't appreciate my wonderfulness. I mean, I'm pricing it, but that's like half an hour. And I'll say, or that producer is a jerk, or this director is unappreciative, and these people are bad. And I'll say, awesome, but that's our business. And other people work with that producer. So your job is to make it work because you love cinematography. So how do you find a way to focus on the things you love and we all have gatekeepers. I said to them, you know, example, I'd say it's a grandiose one, but I said, you know, President Obama got in office with these dreams of the things he wanted to do. And the reality is we're in the middle of a global, you know, depression. The reality is you have an opposition party who will do anything to stop him. But you work with it. We all work with impediments. So when artists say, people say, well, these people have stopped me, I can't do anything because I'll say, okay, this person stopped you. So then what's your job? Like, how do you get through to that? Or how do you focus on what you want to be doing on the set? And there's a lot of crap and it's not easy, but there's politics in our business. So someone will say, you know, um, this person was bad. And I'll say, okay, but did you inspire the director? What do you mean? I'm like, well, you're there to inspire other people. Your job is to be inspired, but also to inspire other people. So you're on the set. Did you think about what it was going to be like before? Did you come up with ideas? Did you do your homework? Did you prepare? And if the producer is difficult, how do you find a way to diffuse the situation? Well, they were disrespectful. I get it. But we diffuse situations. Like, for example, you know, I've had times where I've traveled. I was in Paris recently. And people say, you know, Parisians are very rude. And they're not rude. They're incredibly sweet. At first, they're a little brusque with me. And I don't engage that brusqueness. Kind of just listen and don't say anything. Oh, yeah, I get that. I mean, I'm New York. It's kind yeah. of same vibe. Yeah, I, but, but what I mean is that I could engage that person and have an argument and feel justified at having that argument. But the gist is I'm not wasting my time and energy on nothing. Well, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times it's also, you know, the whole thing of like filmmaking is 5% filmmaking. And I think in a collaborative art, unless you want to be a painter locked away in your room, if you're in a collaborative art form that requires like 40 people on set, you know, a lot of the craft is, especially as a department head, the leadership stuff. And like, the, I think what you were talking yeah. about when you're like, you know, a child, like when you're a kid and you're thinking about, well, I want to be a cinematographer, but you don't like what you're not, you're not saying out loud, I want to run the G&E and camera departments. That's not like what you're saying, uh, especially at that time. And it's like, I don't want to uh, manage you know, budget restrictions from my producer who's driving me crazy and my director's asking for things that like the budget can't handle, but he doesn't understand that. And I have to come up with some creative solutions so that everybody's happy because it's falling on me this time. Like that's the stuff, you know, that's the job. And I, I um, it's been a long road in terms of coming to terms with how best to deal with that kind of thing. Yes. And truly, if you say, when I say that the best artists are the ones who are coachable, because the ones who say, well, I'm fine and the world is wrong. <laughs> what do you do because uh, because I mean, that but that's really nice you could sit in your room and feel like i'm justifying i'm right and everyone else is bad well guess what you have to interact with those people so well i think also there's something about you know uh, there's a folklore behind like the two or three people that managed to be that way and like became successful or something but that's not even in the majority of people who have become successful like that's not what it requires. And it's been interesting in terms of my own progression that the, the, the more skilled sets I'm on, the, the better people are at that stuff. It doesn't, it's not the other way around. And that makes sense, you know? Like the, the, yeah. the, holistic, the holistic thinking people are the ones that keep rising. 
And I, I don't know, um, I, you know, I, I realize with this podcast versus other ones in this arena, you know, we don't talk about gear and we don't talk about the technical aspects and there is this mental scape and there are people who've emailed me before saying like, I like that you talk about like the soft qualities versus the hard technical ones and it's that's nice and I do like doing it but it's so intangible like you know when are when are you actually talking about that specifically I don't know I, I know that we don't uh, talk about gear but but I no. but it's like talking about life in general is actually talking about that I'll tell you something funny that um, in a way your whole podcast is um, doing something Quentin Tarantino did so um, I'll take Quentin, it. <laughs> no, so what do you mean? So when Quentin first started his career, he told everybody, I'm not saying it's the same. He was writing this book and he would interview all of these directors and all of these people for his book. But there was no book. It was Quentin wanting to learn. Yes. So, yes, uh, like and he would do this. And it was funny. One of my other clients was a director who told me that Quentin interviewed him for his book. And he realized it was just crap that there was no book. So this is like when when I was Quentin's agent, we were just like, you know, fuck if I knew anything, but we were just starting out. And But he interviewed people. So I kind of like with your podcast how, as a cinematographer, you know, uh, Robert Frost said, poetry is a momentary stay against confusion. So it just like makes sense of the world in that moment. So um, like your podcast is cool. It like makes sense of the world so that when you go off and interact with people, you're like, okay. Then you have to go back to another podcast because it kind of like, it's like your North Star. Right, right. Well, yeah, you know. Um, cool. So I think one of the things that was interesting me and something that I had been thinking about um, since our last conversation was that you were talking about how it sounds like most people tend to be asking themselves the wrong questions when they are thinking about their career and likewise thinking about why they want an agent or which agent they should you know, reach out to. Um, what internal questions are you finding? Are people asking themselves that you don't agree with or that you think is wrong? And what should they really be asking themselves? I think, the, I think when a cinematographer is looking at equipment, they're very specific about how they want to use it, what they want to use it for, and they choose the right equipment. When they're looking at agents, they kind of look more like the packaging you know, like a package for a camera might say, this is the best camera of all time. And, and this guy shot this film and that guy shot that film. And you wouldn't buy it because of that. You buy a camera because of the capabilities. And when it comes to agents, people just buy the hype sometimes. Mm. So it doesn't matter what I've done for other artists. It's what am I going to do for you? And it's like, what do I say about your, um, the, your, the things you've shot? What do I say about my goals for you, you know, as an artist and how we'll collaborate? What do I say about kind of how I see how you fit in the marketplace? So if you look at, well, he's a good agent because he's done this for other people. It's like hiring a cam. It's like getting a camera because there's a cinematographer you like who uses it as opposed to saying, hey, this is my specific shoot. And these are the capabilities I need for this shoot and choosing a camera for that. And the same with an agent. And the agents are wonderful and they're enthusiastic and they're happy and they, they tell you how great you are and you have this wonderful connection. But at the end of the day, a camera only works. You know, a camera or an agent has very specific capabilities. And you have to make sure to understand the capabilities of that person before you hire them and not worry about what else they've done for other people. Yeah. I can see how it just seems like so much is riding on that decision and, you know, like the pressure to, to make that right decision and that, you know, things get stacked against you when, or like your, your concerns grow when you know, you know, the catalog or the, the types of people that someone may have represented before. And I could see how that stuff kind of blurs someone's ability to make a proper judgment more so along the lines of but what are they what was the conversation that I personally had with them and how did that make me feel and that kind of thing that that outside pressure can become so high I think the best way to to interview agents is to have a very specific idea in mind for what you want to get out of the agent and the more specific the better 
because if you hire an agent because you, you, you like them or because of some generality, the odds are you won't get what you want. Mm. So, and yeah, agents are important and agents could do wonderful things for your career, but it's like hiring a member of your crew because that person shot for a DP who you love. That yeah. doesn't mean they're right for you. And they might even make things worse. Yeah. So it's sometimes it's better to have no agent than an agent who's not right because a wrong agent will make you feel as though stuff's being done and make you feel as though they figure out things what they really haven't. So an agent's important, but in the end of the day, it is, you know, how honest are you with yourself about the kind of people you want to be working with and the kind of work you want to do? And if you're really yeah. honest with yourself, you'll choose the right agent. But if you look at yourself, this is the worst thing anyone can do is... I've paid my dues, and I've been doing this for so long, therefore I'm entitled to something. Well, mm. guess what? Like Every day you wake up, you're almost paying your dues again. Every day you're kind of figuring stuff out, and you can't say, I've done all of this hard work, therefore I'm entitled to something. None of us are entitled to anything. We only get because you know, we connect to someone else and they choose to hire us. Or we do good work and therefore we get something. And we're only as good as we are today. And if you're kind of a little bit humble and you see it that way, you'll find the right people. But the second you start telling yourself that you feel like you're entitled to something, then you kind of start going down a path that doesn't lead anywhere good. Yeah. And well, I also find it interesting that a lot of this discussion... Um, people are like, there's always a discussion that people want agents and that we all see the value in it. And then at the same time, there's like the, this other conversation that happens parallel. We're like, yeah, but you know, getting an agent isn't the watershed moment you think it is and that um, it doesn't guarantee anything. And I know that both are true at the same time. And I find that fascinating. What's your take on that in terms of, I guess, what they can, the, the types of changes that you can expect or really is it not? Is, oh, is the perfect. equation really not that way? Let's change the word agent for gaffer. Mm. So you go like, I want to find the perfect gaffer who I'll really work well with and I'll connect with. But sometimes, you know, you try different gaffers until you find that right person. And you yeah. talk to different agents or maybe you have different agents till you get that person who really kind of understands you, understands your work, and you say, I want to do something, and that gaffer goes, no, but try this, and actually makes your idea better. So the wrong gaffer will make things worse, so you don't want to just choose someone because they work for, you know, whoever, Rodrigo Prieto, whoever you like. Yeah. You get them because you say something, and they love your references, and they love the films you do. So all I mean is, is that, yeah, an agent's an awesome thing, but it takes time. And if you're patient and make sure that you and the agent really kind of connect with each other and they're honest. So by honest, I mean, look at, write down the specific things they said. Not like, I really believe in you and I think you're, real, you're talented and you're the next, whatever that is. Yeah. Well, that's great. Instead of saying, hey, this specific director, this specific producer, this specific situation I want you to work with, and this is why I want you to work with them, and this is how I would pitch you to that person, and this is how I see your work, then you're good. But realize it's like the crew. Like you look at Emmanuel Lebesky, right? Well, the guy's been shooting for a long time, and he has a crew of people around him who are really dialed into what he's doing. But that takes time. And if you rush it, you get the wrong people. It's like yeah. marrying someone you just dated twice. Maybe that's the love of your life and you're good, but maybe you kind of rushed it. Things yeah, no, no, that, that makes total sense to me. And I love the comparisons to other crew members because I think it's a good way to just have a mental attitude towards the agent that they're another crew member in, in a certain vein. I guess, how long do you think someone should allow a relationship with an agent to go before wondering if they should move on? Like, how, what, what's an appropriate amount of time for things to take time to gel or sink or for, you know, your work to get up to speed on their radar or, th you know, I don't know what, what the right terminology might be, but how do you see that? 
I think if you have really specific things you want to get out of the relationship and you have a good collaboration, you'll know if it's off track and then you try to fix it. So if it, the thing all cinematographers hate is a director says, give me something edgy. But what does that mean? So if you say to your agent, I want to do cool work. Okay. It's so vague that you don't know if the agent's doing a good job or the agent's doing a bad job. And then in four months, you're like, hey, man, I'm not getting cool jobs. What's up? But if it's like, if it's here are some specific people I want to work with, here are some specific jobs I'm referencing, then you look in X time and say, hey, look, we didn't get that. Like, what's going on? Are we off track? And you explain it with that really specific thing in mind then you'll kind of know, you know, and you'll fix it. And so I think every three months, it's good just to check in and say, this is where we're at. This is where we want to be and try to keep it as factual as you can. Like I see people saying stuff and it's really wonderful. Like, you know, uh, they'll compare their agent to their dad or their mom, or they'll say this wonderful thing and that wonderful thing. And that's nice, but they're a gaffer you know, and you look at the light and say, is it good or is it bad? And just make it that factual. Because when it's that factual, you know, and objective, then you can really grow and have a conversation back and forth. When it's in the world of a director saying, do something, cut, not even emotional, but just like vague. Like, I want yeah, it to be yeah. cutting edge. Well, I don't even know what that means. What's cutting edge? Like, where's the edge? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. What does that mean? <laughs> no, no, no. No, that's making sense in terms of just trying the more specific you can be, it makes it easier for them to understand what like the goals are and then that also creates a more clear rubric for if things are happening in the way you want or not. The specificity is where it's at. You know, I was at this um cop some restaurant or something and I ran into Jeremy Piven, who is the actor from Entourage. Yeah, yeah, sure. And we were talking about his role of being an agent. And it was fun because I started out representing directors and, you know, all of these people and actors. And the role is just being kind of silly, like a cartoon character. And we were breaking what do you down. Mean? But like no agent does that. That's not how you do your job. It's like a character. And he even said, yeah, it's a character because, yeah, you say silly shit to your clients, but it's it's really, it's very specific. Like, here are the actors we want to get, and this is why we want to get them, and this is the foreign sales, and these are the, you know, if you're an actor, this is why I want to work with this director, and you make it a really factual thing. Like, okay, yeah, so there's a lot director, of brass tacks. Yeah, it's it's a, it's really a business relationship. So what happens is people get caught up in the silliness. Like, I'm gonna make you a star, yo. Okay, great. I made that guy a star. Yo, man, I got this shit dialed in. Okay, great. But what does that mean? So <laughs> it's like easy to be like larger than life and like, dude, I'm, you know, and, and say all of this stuff, but it means nothing. Like, yeah, you know, like don't believe the hype. Like you, yeah. once you start believing the hype, you confuse yourself. Yeah, it's great to be larger than life to go. Fuck yeah, I'll take care of that shit done. And, and sometimes that just means like, yeah, I know this stuff and I'll take care of it. But the more you're like in generalities, like my agent represents this guy or that guy. So when I started out with um, directors and actors and, you know, I had, you know, really well-known people. And um, the thing is, is that at the end of the day, when you say things that are overly vague too much, like if I say tree, my idea of a tree is different than your idea of a tree. And that's... That's a pretty specific thing. So if you expand that to other stuff, my idea of good is different than your idea of good. And at some point, it's good to calibrate. Like you have um, a camera or you have any device. You go back and you calibrate it to make sure that when it focuses, it actually focuses and that things work. So you have all of these terms you use like you know, this is fucking awesome, or this is really cool. Yeah. I'm you rad no, no. shit. Yeah, what that is makes rad sense. shit? Because if you don't calibrate sense. it, maybe maybe the equipment's never focused. You gotta maybe be like, you gotta be on the same page. Yeah. You know, at, at the end of the day, 
I, I, no, I, I think that that's great advice and it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And it's also, that's applicable for kind of any relationship that you have in, in the arts with um, any of your collaborators, um, either technical collaborators or business collaborators. It, it kind of all boils down to being specific. I, I also wanted to talk about, um, Let me something say we were one, talking. One last thing about that. Yeah, go ahead. Go mind. ahead. So, sure, sure. I'm really lucky that there's this um, guy named Jack Rapke. And Rapke used to run CAA, and he had people like some of the. He was like the co-chairman of CAA, and there's been some other people, but he's a really amazing dude. Like he is one of the top agents in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I talk to him about his job and what he does, he's really humble in a way. There's a lot of humility in the things he says. He's not at all like Jeremy Piven. Then I talk to other people who are DP agents who do what I do. And they're just so grandiose and so full of themselves. And you think, okay, so here's this guy who truly is one of the biggest agents in the world when he was, and he has that humility. So like, I think we sometimes confuse a person being uh, certain with a person actually knowing what they have, knowing what they're doing. Yeah, don't worry, man, I have it taken care of. I know this, I've done this, I'm a big shot. That doesn't mean anything. Like, you have to divorce all of that from what's really going on. And I think about that example of Jack Rapke, and I'm always trying to get myself to go, okay, take a breath, relax. Like, what's really going on? And trying to be a better listener and be humble because, you know, because an agent's done wonderful stuff and they're really confident and they're fun, that doesn't mean anything. That just hype, I think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I respect humility in people, I think, more than anything else, because that shows a kind of sincerity. And the fact is, there's a lot of guesswork, like, you know, even with taxes. So I'm talking to a tax person, and you think, well, this guy should know, or this person should know what they're doing. Well, taxes are probability. If you do these things, here are the odds are you'll be audited. Everything in life is probability. So realize that when you talk to people, there is no certainty, there's probability. So you're like, the probability of A versus the probability of B, based on my experiences, tells me. Yeah. So when people talk in certainty, you're just looking for something that doesn't exist. And if you think that there's certainty, you will be disappointed at some point. Definitely. No, that's great. No, no, I love that. I mean, I think it's true. And especially there's just a lot of yeah, I find that the people that I admire most or the people whose work I'm most in awe of, when they talk about it, they are usually the ones who are the least sure. And it's almost within that uncertainty comes their ability to try things because it does come from a place of, of uncertainty. And it's kind of a great segue because I wanted to talk about inspiration and where people should find it. Uh, the other day we had an interesting discussion just about making sure that you're taking the time to focus on on your craft and to like break away and and kind of declutter from the noise so that you can actually as you were saying you know get to a quiet space so that you can really be thinking about what you're um want to be doing and i just thought that that was um you know it makes sense and it's something that i've thought about before but the way that you were crystallizing it was nice to hear okay so i think a lot of people once they become a cinematographer and they're doing good stuff they feel like okay i'm set but it's not really that way. I mean, I was in Paris and I was talking to this wonderful guy who was an associate designer for Karl Lagerfeld and for Mondino, and I mean, I'm not, uh, Gautier, I mean, and these really big designers. And yeah. he was saying that they're always aware of what every other designer is doing. And they're aware of like street culture and they're aware of what, what clothes people wear and what's going on. And they really monitor things very, very closely, especially the best designers. And if you think about cinematography, yeah, it's nice you go see films, but go to museums or go for a walk or make time, not as like um, an afterthought, but part of your life that you're looking at the things that you connect with, that inspire you, and really make it a definite habit that's part of your life. Because... um, 
I think of this thing that, that really meant a lot to me. So Jimmy Ivey, who was an industrial designer for Steve Jobs, and came up with the iPhone, you know, like the design for the iPhone, is just yeah. a great designer, said that Steve Jobs was the most remarkably focused person he ever met. And he said, focus is, is not something you choose. You don't wake up and say, I'm going to be focused today. Focus is something that's just part of who you are as a person. So mm. if finding things that inspire you and connect you to the world and connect you to your art, that should be literally part of your life, not just like, hey, I'm not doing good work. I'm going to go get some inspiration. Right. It doesn't work so well. and But it has to be a discipline in the sense that you can't be lazy. Like, I'm inspired by my kids. Awesome, but... Go look at art. Go look at photos. It has to be really specific to your cinematography because cinematography is an art form. And the reason I bring up fashion is that cinematography is a fashion that aesthetics change and, and ways people capture things change. And you need to know what's going on because it doesn't exist in a bubble. And it's not like the old days where, you know, a lot less films and things are being made. Now between like, you know, YouTube and Vimeo and every and, and Instagram and platforms. There's so many really compelling images and things that are being captured that you really have to be on top of it. But yeah. if you are, it's so exciting. Well, because I was also thinking that, you know, a lot of times what ends up happening is that if you're not paying attention and the only thing you're thinking about is the craft, then there isn't any influence besides like the craft itself and then it becomes a very insular place of ideation versus being yes. versus having so, outside influence oh i agree so then maybe i think it's good when if you're making a mood board just put some paintings on or put some line drawings on mm. or even if you want to have a song on there to say when i hear this song i remember being in this place and talk about the place. So the inspiration kind of takes you somewhere in a way. So find things that you really connect with and take you a certain place. Like supposedly Daniel Day-Lewis, when he was doing uh, Gangs of New York, listened mm. to Eminem songs. Find things that get you there. But my only point from before is like, really be thoughtful. Don't be lazy in the stuff you choose. Well, no, um, I think it was, su it was a really, that's a really interesting thing with that mood boards obviously working in a visual medium and and I've actually been noticing I've just been growing tired of mood boards that all look the same regardless of the content or the ask just because we've gotten to a place where a certain style is a certain style and you know that's yes. kind of what the client is after so that's what you're putting on the mood board and it kind of all just becomes I have this folder of all of these images and I use them every time and but it's interesting that the mood board could come from it, it, it's cool if you're using other mediums to do it or or like you're saying paintings or songs and it's like the way that this makes me feel when I listen is how I want, like is how I want my visuals to impact. That's just, that's, that's, I like that. And there's two types of mood boards I think you can get. And it's important that mood boards have two qualities. There's representational and non-representational. So non-representational would be that song or would be a Jackson Pollock painting or Rothko or mm. uh, Rauschenberg or whatever you like. And then you have the literal, like here's some cinematography and photos and I like the way this goes. And the other is kind of non-representational. In other words, it doesn't you know, literally represent this thing you're photographing, but it represents what the photography is supposed to capture. So that's almost the bigger goal. So the, the mood yeah. boards can be, you know, the technical stuff. But if they're only technical references, then you've lost something. Have like non-technical references. Have references that takes people into a place. It can be literally anything. You know, I don't know. You could, you could, if you want to, have some like diary from when you're like 12 years old and you tore out a page and you're like, this is it. You're like, why? Because this is a film and this is a scene and this is what I want the character to experience and this is what the character is experiencing. When I was 12, I remember this. And then the great part is, then it takes you into a place of like where you actually want to end up. So part of a mood board might be how you get there, but part of a mood board should be like, where do you want to be? Where is the place? And not just, yeah. you know, the how, but the what. Yeah, yeah. I like that. And I, I wanted to talk too about, um, you know, 
since you've been doing since you've been an agent for a long time you've it's yeah. it's been you've seen trends and that you've been working through many trends and like you're talking about how things are constantly changing and I'm wondering like what are you seeing in the younger generation that you're representing and what they might be doing differently and what aspects of it are you do you like and is there anything that you kind of are cautious about in terms of red flags that might yeah. be different from from older clients that you might have yeah i think like we were saying before older clients had i think a more finite group of um, references that they pulled from and finite uh, group of things that they looked at now you know there's trends but if you look at world culture there's so much going on it is it is as close to infinite as you can be um so there was this guy named bill cunningham and bill cunningham was a, a fashion person from the New York Times, and he'd photograph street culture. Yeah, I know find, his work. Yeah, he was awesome. So in a way, you're kind of need to be a bit like Bill Cunningham. You know, look at what's going on. Find the things that affect you as a person and explore them. Because I think... Are you saying that's happening you, more now than it did yeah, in the past? Yeah, I, I think that's the way to succeed now, is to really let yourself be Bill Cunningham and see what's going on and let yourself be inspired. Like we're saying, go to museums or do these things. So I don't think like, I used to represent screenwriters and people say to me, oh, what kind of genre do you want me to write? Do I have a comedy and I have a drama and I have this and I have that. And I'd say, well, that's useless. Don't do that. Because by the time you've identified a trend, that trend's almost dying and they're onto another trend. So you say, now they want comedies because comedies are making a lot of money. By the time you finish your spec script, now they want dramas. And by the time you finish that spec script, now they want big action films. So find things that you connect with. Look at what's going on. And don't worry about what other people are doing too much. Because there's not like there's not one thing that's a panacea. You know, mm. there's things that you do. Because you know what the funny thing is? Like you look at really interesting filmmakers, they kind of change the way things are done. You know, there's yeah. cinematographers who've shot a film who kind of changed the art form. And they're like, shit, I want to do that. So if you're worried too much about like what the secret is, like this is the thing that's going on, you'll probably miss it because then what you're doing is you're starting from the outside in. You're like, okay, this is what's good and I need to do it. Instead, you're trying to understand and explore things to help what you have inside kind of go out and maybe maybe your stuff isn't hitting maybe people don't dig it but in time if you're if what you're onto is something good they will get it well um, yeah i think it's a conversation that kind of stems along you know try and be truthful and honest and that that you know at that point then the genre doesn't matter as much and even if the genre in which you're being truthful and honest isn't the in thing it's almost like that can rise anyway because people are resonating with the truth behind it and that like, you know, all of a sudden yes. you've made something where people are like, who knew that this could be successful? And it's like, well, yeah. it's not because of the medium of the genre. It's because it was yeah. someone being honest with themselves. Yeah. I know that your, your time is short, so I wanted to ask one final question because I was curious about this. Um, I'm just curious, how are you defining success either for yourself or for or for the people that you represent and and has that has your definition for that um changed over time if you can if you can take note of that i think um success it really varies every day i think it is um am i making a difference in in the artist crews who we represent am i keeping my colleagues inspired and getting them to do their best work and if i do that then i know that i'm onto something good and if I don't, like if I say, oh, well, this person doesn't understand and that person doesn't understand, well, then it's really my problem. So am I, you know, am I helping, am I helping the artist I rep that I'm representing to kind of be honest with themselves and be focused and to define where they want to be? And am I actually accomplishing those things? And, you know, if I look at an artist over two years, are they further along than they were two years ago? Do they have a better sense of themselves? Has their work evolved? Are they collaborating with people who they've wanted to collaborate with? One of our artists said something really awesome, and I was really touched by it. 
He said, you know, I'm always keeping a diary of where I'm at, what my goals are. And I look at where I was at before I signed with you guys, and I look at where I'm at now, and it's vastly different places. And he said, I think all of your artists should do that because sometimes they forget where they were and they're just aware of what they want. And mm. he said, like, and it was really nice uh, that he said that. But I think of all of us, if we do that, it makes a huge difference. I always think of this TV show Westworld, uh, or always, but I think of the show Westworld. And yeah. you have these hosts, and the hosts are supposedly much more intelligent than human beings and much more capable than human beings. And human beings are almost a lesser version of the hosts. But the hosts, every day is the same day. They don't write notes. They don't have diaries. They have nothing outside of themselves. So they never really grow. And I think as people, if we don't keep a diary or a notebook or a journal or anything just to, to track where we want to be, what happens is you're only aware of the things that you don't have and you're only aware of the things that you want as opposed to um, actually looking like, oh shit, like I've actually grown and I've gotten all these great things in my life and, you know, it just it helps so much. And when you don't do that, you end up being really dissatisfied, never finding success because if success is something really specific, then you kind of know you've gotten there and you look at your path. Otherwise, if you don't do that and you don't write things down, you're only aware of what you don't have. And it's like there's a story supposedly that Jim Cameron got uh, a bad review for Titanic and he hated it and it really pissed him off. And the day after Titanic won an Academy Award for Best Picture, he took out a full page ad showing the movie reviewer why he was wrong. <laughs> and you're like, your film made a billion dollars and you got the Academy Award for Best Picture. Like, who cares? Like, yeah. really, who cares? <laughs> Come on, man, get over it. But so that's the point. It's like, and Jim Cameron's a brilliant guy, and, you know, and he's made great films, and, you know, and he's done all this wonderful stuff, and I admire him. But, like, sometimes if you don't write things down, you never find success, because success is kind of starting in one place and going to another. But if you forget where you came from, how will you ever do anything? You'll always be unhappy. No, I like it. And it honestly takes the conversation full circle because it does come back down to specificity and, and not being vague and that, you know, you're going to feel like you're not being successful if you're being vague with your self-assessment. Yeah, 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 100%. Well, that's great, man. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Um, great to get all, hear all of your thoughts and, and advice to cinematographers and just to artists who are having, having a thoughtful life in general. It's been... It's been uh, Really nice to hear your opinions on things. No, it's such a pleasure to speak about this with you. I mean, just talking about you and the questions you've asked have really given me a lot to think about, and um, I appreciate that. It's wonderful. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you.